Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying happy. I hope you're staying healthy. And I hope that you're staying safe. It's another jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Emma Brody, a Brooklyn, New York-based writer and editor. As an editor, she's published everyone from Aquafina and Anna Dresden to Nathan W. Pyle and Marley Grace, best-selling authors all. She is currently an executive editor at Little Brown. But we're not talking about editing today. Well, may we touch on it a little bit, but in relationship to her debut novel, a book that she's written called Songs in Ursa Major, a love story set in 1969 at the crossroads of rock and folk music, where a young musical prodigy falls in love with a hard partying folk legend. We'll get to that in just a little while. My first guest today has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the internet's OBGYN. She is an OBGYN and a pain medicine physician. She is also Gwyneth Paltrow's nemesis, a fierce advocate for women's health, and has devoted her professional life to caring for women. She also writes about sex, science, and social media, and is the author of The Vagina Bible and her newest book, The Menopause Manifesto, which is in stores right now. Dr. Jen Gunter joins me via Zoom from Northern California. You write in the Menopause Manifesto that menopause is puberty in reverse. Uh, let's begin by defining for everybody what menopause is exactly. Sure. So menopause is a transition from a time of active ovarian function where there's ovulation to a time where ovulation ends. Now, why were you inspired to write the Menopause Manifesto? You talk in the book about uh, misconceptions, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later on. Uh, but was that it, that people were coming to see you and had odd ideas about menopause or no ideas about menopause, and you felt you had to uh, detail it in a book? Well, you know, I sort of see myself as this person who's working to fix communication gaps in medicine. And a lot of that involves debunking, but a lot of that also involves listening to people to try to figure out, you know, where those gaps are. And when I was on book tour for the vagina Bible, I would get question after question after question about menopause. And I really started to think that obviously there was a need here. And I was aware of the growing market of sort of I would say scammy products online directed towards menopause and a lot of false information and something someone said to me really stuck. You know, a woman said that there was no culture in menopause and they felt lonely. Mm -hmm. And I just really thought a lot about that. Like, why is that? And so that really, you know, that, that interaction really informed a lot of the book. And what exactly did you take her to mean by that? nobody talks about it. There's just silence. There's literally nothing, you know, at least with the vagina and the vulva, there's sort of active shame. I mean, that's awful to say, but, but at least it's discussed, at least there are sort of jokes. And I mean, again, that's awful that that's the level of discourse, but with menopause is like, there's nothing. You just become invisible. You know, you are, your relevance to this earth has sort of just basically disappeared. And then what's the natural ramification of that? Well, if your relevance disappears with menopause, that means your only value is as a breeder. You know, what does that say? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so there's a really just cultural silence and people want to know what's happening to their bodies. I mean, they should. And the the symptoms can uh, vary quite wide, uh, widely. I mean, I would assume that there are as many or almost as many uh, symptoms and, and variation in symptoms as there are people that will experience them because we're all wired just a little bit differently. Uh, but why do they vary so widely? 
Yeah. So there is a huge variation in experience. And if you think back to puberty, right, your puberty is different from somebody else's, everybody, your pregnancy, your everybody's pregnancy is different. And so we see that with menopause as well. And the reason for the variation in symptoms isn't quite well understood. Obviously there's probably a genetic component Mm -hmm. overall health. Uh, you know, somebody who has, um, depression or anxiety often has the worst symptoms or they can have a worsening of their depression. Uh, people who smoke tend to have more symptoms as well. And actually uh, there's some growing evidence that shows that childhood trauma. So, uh, being exposed to, you know, a family where there was a divorce or a parent who was an alcoholic or a parent who was incarcerated or childhood, you know, emotional or sexual abuse, that those factors become additive and those can actually increase, um, some of the symptoms that are experienced in menopause. And how so? That's interesting. So childhood trauma, I mean, we can understand that, or I can understand that, I guess, uh, leading to depression, leading to various things in that way. But but how does it affect uh, the menopause situation? It's fascinating, right? That your hot flashes that you have, um, could be related in some way or, mm-hmm. or something that happened to you as a child could help set the stage. I think it's sort of more like that. You know, we are all the sum of our experiences. Well, every symptom that you have, you know, is perceived in your brain. And this doesn't mean it's in your head. That means that neurotransmitters assemble signals. And there is data to say that different parts of your brain that send different types of neurotransmitters can enlarge or be smaller based on having, you know, repetitive traumas as a child. And so if you think about it as kind of changing your platform or changing the computer as it's being built. So then if there's a glitch in the computer, like for example, menopause or, or a new operating system right. gets uploaded, the computer that maybe had a little hardwiring glitch has more problems with the new uploading system. That's my best analogy as mm-hmm. someone who doesn't understand computers much. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Dr. Jen Gunter. Her book, The Menopause Manifesto, is available wherever you buy fine books. Now, you talk about the widespread uh, misinformation about menopause. What's the most misunderstood thing about menopause? Well, I think the, you know, there's, there's quite a few. Um, and so I think, uh, let me break it down and give you two answers if that's okay. I think one is sort of from a greater cultural perspective is that menopause is a sign of disease or a sign of weakness. And it's not, mm-hmm. it's a planned end in ovarian function, you know, just in the same way that pregnancy has to end at a specific time. So it's a planned end, uh, in the same way that being a child ends. So these things are planned ends. I think medically, the biggest misconception is that symptoms start only with menopause, meaning the final menstrual period. But we have great evidence to show that the men's, the menopause transition, the time of sort of hormonal chaos in the sort of five to six to eight years before your final period is actually for many women associated with the greatest level of symptoms. And why then has there been such a lack of research into this? 50% of the population are going to experience this. Uh, why have, have there not been more studies done? 
Well, I think there's a couple of answers. So first of all, the patriarchy, <laughs> obviously, if, you know, if the people studying health don't represent a diverse population, you know, we, we all suffer from that, but there also have been in the last 20 years, really, I would say an, a rapidly increasing amount of research in this area. And so I think that there's a bit of a knowledge disconnect. You know, there are lots of different therapies and a greater understanding of a lot of the symptoms. And yet we're having information difficulty getting that information from the people who are studying it into clinical practice. So I think that, you know, the answer is there could be more, I mean, there could always be more, um, but we actually have a growing body of great information. And the problem is our airwaves and our internet are often filled with the snake oil people and not the people with the real information. Right. Well, there are lots of startups that are tackling menopause and menopause issues, but you say that they're not selling anything new. Uh, how, how so? Yeah. I mean, you know, people who want to help women in menopause going directly to a product is not helping anybody because if you're saying your product has a medical benefit, then you need to prove that, you know, saying that you've got this new great idea is no different from someone in the 1700s coming up with a new poultice, right? Like show me the money. Right. Exactly. You know, we have this long history in medicine actually of women being harmed by new therapies and this idea that people should put something into their body, like a new supplement or something that hasn't been tested is unacceptable to me. You know, I think that, that when people don't have studies to back up their, um, what they're offering as, you know, quasi medical therapy, you know, they're often skirting the sort of using the words wellness. So they are sort of skirting the idea of not being a pharmaceutical. I think that they need to be held to the same standard as pharmaceuticals. If you're putting something in your body and you're expecting it to have a physical effect, then it's having an effect on your body. And we should know what that is. Don't women deserve that. Well, I think often that it's more insidious than that, because I think what they're selling is hope. And it's not just simply uh, cures for menopause or, or, or what or a pill to help you feel better during menopause, but whether it's um, shady cancer treatments or whatever it might be, I think that the, the worst part of this is that they're selling false hope. And that yeah. is, is uh, absolutely evil. I absolutely agree. And I think it's an illusion of caring, mm -hmm. right? It's an illusion of listening to you. It's saying that, you know, there are gaps in medicine. Absolutely. There are people who are dismissed. There's people who can't access timely care. There's people who, you know, can't afford care. So these huge gaps, they're not closing any of those gaps. They are walking right in and exploiting them. And I think that's a really key point. What is your expert advice for anyone that's approaching or in menopause right now? Well, I think understanding, you know, something that's often missed and symptoms are important, but there are medical ramifications of menopause. So the earlier you are, when you have menopause, the greater your risk of heart disease or osteoporosis or dementia. So understanding that you face those risks so you can do things to help mitigate it. So for example, that's really important. Uh, knowing the physiology, why your body is changing is so empowering. I mean, most of us have an idea what's happening to us in puberty, mm -hmm. uh, and even if you had terrible, you know, education in schools, you 
know, there are books where there's heroines and heroes who are going through puberty and there's movies and things like that. Right. So, so you have some cultural narrative to sort of use. So I think that, you know, getting informed about what's happening to your body, because then you can make the best, most informed medical choices later on. That was Dr. Jen Gunter, author of The Menopause Manifesto. She is a practicing gynecologist in the Bay Area of San Francisco, and you can find her books wherever you buy fine books. Now we're going to spend some time with Emma Brody, a Brooklyn, New York-based writer and editor who has worked with some very big-named authors. Now she is set to add her name to the list of best-selling authors with her debut novel, Songs in Ursa Major, a love story set in 1969 at the crossroads of folk and rock music. Emma Brody joins me via Zoom from upstate New York. Congratulations on the book. It's fantastic. I'm a music geek, uh, so um, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack here. But before we get to that, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, your work as an editor. You have published authors like Aquafina and uh, Marley Grace and Emma Gray. Was it difficult to approach your own work uh, with the same sort of eyes that you use when you're looking at someone else's work? That is such a great question. Um, it was and it wasn't. So basically I had to kind of do a split screen and lock the editor out of the room at a certain point. <laughs> um, like I started out trying to be really smart and really strategic and it just got me nowhere. I was, I really wanted to write this book. I had an opportunity just sort of schedule wise and I had this idea that I loved and I sat down to do it and felt completely self-conscious just by the thoughts in my brain and all of the voices I'd recorded and a decade of editorial meetings I'd sat in. And ultimately what ended up happening was I just sort of had a moment with myself and was like, look, girl, write your adverbs, <laughs> write terribly. Don't worry. You're going to go back and redo all of this, but you just have to play. And the first draft came really, really fast after that. And then we let the editor back in and it was gruesome and glorious. And all of all of what I know how to do came back, which is useful. <laughs> so would so, that yeah. be your advice to uh, beginning authors is just to get it out there, just get it on the page. And then your work, you, you refine it. I've often said, <clears throat> pardon me. I have often said that the actual writing is in the rewriting. And so is that essentially what you're saying to people? I think that's very true. I think part of what you want is to find out what happens. And I think there, Stephen King talks about having a, a draft with the door closed and a draft with the door open. Right. And I think in order to fall in love with your story and sort of lay the groundwork for all the months of work that are going to go into it, if it ends up becoming a book, you have to have that initial honeymoon phase, which I think is really, really encouraged by just getting to sort of play and and not think about who else is going to be reading it. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a practical aspect of that because you actually have to find out what happens in the book. Um, and there's really no way to do that until you go through it. And then I think, yeah, the actual style and, and what you would want to represent yourself, I totally think that's in the rewriting. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a different kind of play in that, but it's more, it's not like running through a field. It's it's like the satisfaction you get from completing a beautiful needlepoint sampler. Right, right, <laughs> so. right, right. And what did you learn from that process? You've guided people through it, I'm sure, dozens of times, maybe more than that. What did you take away from it that perhaps was unexpected for you? 
Uh, well, it's interesting. So I'm a nonfiction editor, which mm. gives me a little bit of an advantage in terms of guiding my authors, because most of the time the books that I work on are coming off of a proposal. So it's not too different from working off of an outline for a paper. It's just a grander scale. So we usually are able to work off of someone's expertise and sort of a plan and go from there. And a lot of what I do is illustrated. So we can cheat a little bit by adding a really great art program to, you know, make the style a little more heightened. Whereas fiction, um, I think fiction's way harder than what I do in terms of reining it in because you really like most of the time when, when I work on a book, we're, we're there for a specific reason, a specific expertise, a specific lesson, Mm -hmm. whereas anything can happen in a book, honestly. I mean, would it have made sense if Jane and Jesse, my characters, were abducted by aliens? No, but could I have done it? Yes. <laughs> so I think having having any kind of guidepost as a fiction writer, being able to give yourself any kind of like hem- hemming, any kind of fencing to keep yourself in is is so key. And and I think that was like my biggest takeaway from the experience of going through it myself was just to sort of be like, all right, next time I approach this, I'm going to make rules because I know I'm going to come up with so much around those rules anyway. Like, you know, morning glory is growing up a trellis, uh, (laughs) but you, you want to at least give yourself the trellis. Otherwise you're just having weeds everywhere. (laughs) You're listening to my interview with Emma Brody. Find her book songs and Ursa major wherever you buy fine books. Well, perhaps the the next book, the sequel opens with Jane and (laughs) Jesse at a rock concert on Mars or something at a rock festival on Mars. (laughs) That's how it starts. And you get to use your alien abduction. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So for this book, you draw on the American soft rock scene of the 1960s uh, and 70s. Um, Tell me about doing research for that, because you obviously weren't there. People can't see you, but you obviously (laughs) weren't there. Uh, Tell me about uh, talking about that, because it is uh, in the recent memory for a lot of people. It's a a period that a lot of people uh, hold very dear. Uh, So you want to get the vibe right. Tell me about diving into that world. Um, I mean, I don't know that I can take all that much credit. I just obsessively listened to the music and absorbed the language and, and basically, I don't know. I think part of why that epoch lasts in people's brains is because the music that came out of it is still so listenable. And also it totally transports you to this time that feels a little safer, a little more simple, even though in reality, it really wasn't. No. I think life was incredibly unstable. Um, I also, I also think, um, I don't know, like I, I, when I was researching this, like we talked about sort of the creative process behind it, I really wanted this story to come out organically. And then I went back and added a lot afterwards. I knew basic guideposts. Like I obviously knew there was, there were no cell phones. There's no email. Like there's nothing remotely modern in terms of the technology. And I also knew that would affect the media, but I, it ended up being this kind of wonderful shortcut in the sense that I wrote a music story in a time that predates MTV. So a lot of stuff I would have had to research meticulously. It's like sort of the difference between writing a contemporary crime novel versus like a Hercule Poirot. Like the the newspapers were covered it and book publicity, because I work in books, is actually much more similar to what music publicity of that era was like. So I had a nice little shortcut in terms of the business sense as well. Um, And then from there, you know, anecdotally, this is my parents' music. So I, I know a lot from them. Um, and then I grew up going to Martha's Vineyard, which is one of the 
basis for Bailey Island, which is the yeah. setting that Jane's from. And, and, you know, the dream is very much still alive there. Like you, you get a lot just from, from that sort of walking history. So I had a few legs up and then the rest was just reading biographies and trying to suss out different personalities and um, yeah, trying to absorb as much as possible and be a sponge. I think that as I was reading it, I was thinking of uh, like, um, Jesse Reed's motorcycle accident, maybe. Was that Bob Dylan? Because Bob Dylan, of course, famously near where you were sitting right now in upstate New York had a had a, a motorcycle accident that sidelined his career for uh, a year or so afterwards. Um, were, were those very specific things that you would have inserted into the story or was it um, just a, a wash over you and then whatever came out, came out? There were definitely specific things. Um, the motorcycle crash is actually based on James Taylor, who had a motorcycle crash that oh. totally ruined his hand for a, a little bit of time um, right before Sweet Baby James. And I didn't know that about Bob Dylan. That's crazy. I guess it was the thing to do at the time. If you're a musical yep. genius, get a motorcycle, risk it all. And ride um, really fast down a mountain. That's what he <laughs> yeah. did. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um no, I, there was, I had the thing that I brought to this, obviously my love of the Island, Jane's family, this matriarchal clan. Um, and, and I think those two things kind of triangulating with the history I knew about Laurel Canyon and what I was reading about in the music. Um, and also just the stuff that's in the music itself, like allusions to different relationships, different mm -hmm. metaphors that kind of like sparked in my brain in different ways and became scenes. Um, all of that became this like totally fictitious creation but there are these like easter eggs throughout that are definitely just stolen why do you think it is that the music of that generation uh has resonated for so long uh you know if i think about songs that are uh 50 years old now i could list off a, a list as long as my arm and things that you still hear when you turn on the radio in 1969, nobody was listening to music from 1919, you know? So <laughs> that, that 50 year, the last 50 years has been quite remarkable in that it has kept a lot of this music alive uh, that in a way that is kind of unprecedented, I think. It's totally unprecedented. I mean, I think there are a few vectors to that, right? So there's the just practical technological side of it where we have the tech to access that stuff widely. Um, whereas, you know, even 20 years ago, you would have to buy a CD. Now you can get everything so easily. Um, social media has also been huge. Like James Taylor, who obviously I follow religiously on his Instagram, is constantly reposting and engaging with his fans. Right. Joni seems to have someone now in anticipation of blue. So it's like you have this accessibility to these people who, like, for their entire lives were more or less like the more private version of celebrity mm -hmm. that we used to have. Um, and they continue to stay relevant and engaging with new generations. JT still performs. And I also just think it's so listenable, right? Like we don't, when you talk about them and you talk about that music, it's like, we're not talking about Mingus. We're not talking about like JT's experiments of the eighties. Like it's the, it's the early stuff that was produced really, really organically. And, and, you know, it's like, when you think about 
this is going to out me as a sci-fi nerd, but the original, <laughs> the original Star Trek, Star, Star Wars movies, rather, these amazing, iconic desert landscapes and the puppets <laughs> still hold up because they weren't like, whereas like, if you look at Harry Potter movies, for example, the CGI dates itself, I think it's the same thing with the music production. Like it's so simple, um, but so classic that it's totally, it's totally held up. And it's, I don't, I think it's also just so good. Like that's not, that's not a objective statement, but clearly I'm backed up by millions of sales. Like there's just something about the mix of like the salty, sweet key changes and the, the mellow production that you can just listen to these songs over and over and they become like medicine and Mm -hmm. reminders of home. I think ET you could throw into that as well. Yes, I saw it totally. again recently. It's obviously a big rubber puppet, but it doesn't matter. It still, <laughs> you know, packs an emotional wallop. So, totally. Totally. Uh, I'm sitting uh, a few blocks away here in Toronto uh, from Yorkville, which was the scene that gave us Gordon Lightfoot and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and, and that. And I think that there's also something to be said for those acts and those artists who really plied their trade in front of an audience for, in some cases, for a very long time before they uh, got into a recording studio. So by the time they made their first records, they were almost mature artists. They'd been around for long enough. They knew what worked and what didn't work. And I don't think that we see that as much now. We have pop sensations, nothing wrong with pop music, but we have pop sensations that seem to come out of nowhere or talent shows on television or something that don't have the seasoning when they go public uh, to have these kind of resonant careers. Absolutely. I think that's so true. I mean, in a way, like they had an advantage and a disadvantage because now it's so easy, relatively easy to get discovered. If you have Mm -hmm. an iPhone, you can record yourself and put it up somewhere. Granted, you're up against a glut of other content. Um, whereas I think you got the chance, like Marilyn Monroe once said that talent you develop in private. And I think there's a certain aspect of these privatized audiences where, you know, if Joni Mitchell needed to go to a show when she was 19 and at college and first starting to play her folk songs, if she did a really bad job, no one ever heard about it. And I think there's a certain aspect of that, that adds to that maturity that you're talking about, where you get to try on a bunch of things, you know, same as if you were maturing just as a person in the world, um, and go from there and build up your persona. And I love, I love mining through the early recordings of her. Like there's this incredible one, I think it's from 1967 of her singing Little Green. She's got this like chenille, like pink shirt on. And it's just this like super fiery recording that someone did live in New York. And, and what I love about it is like, you can see sort of the counter development that went into, you know, song of a seagull and then like all the ones that came like the next four basically because she she in she had this duo with her husband and was very quaffed had the fake eyelashes was like very 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 like 1950s housewife and then she completely flipped in the other direction and she looks younger at 26 than she did at like 20 it's fascinating um and i think the music also sort of desimplified in, but it, but into a more sophisticated place. And then obviously Joni took it everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Created chords no one had ever heard before. You're listening to my interview with Emma Brody. Her book, Songs in Ursa Major, is available wherever you buy fine books. It's interesting, too, about the stagecraft that goes into this. I spoke with Margaret Atwood recently, the great Canadian author. 
And she used to do poetry readings uh, at the very beginning in coffee houses, uh, again, a few blocks away from here in Yorkville. And there was one, I think it was called the Purple Onion, that uh, the cappuccino machine was to your left, the restrooms are to your right, and the tiny little stage was right in the middle. And if you could survive (laughs) a night of, of talking about, of reciting your poetry, battling with the cappuccino machine and a flushing toilet uh, next to you, you could do almost anything. She, she credits it as one of the, 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 the things that really pushed her career forward and gave her the fortitude to continue. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure that was motivating factor too. It's like, you have yeah. revisions to do your shit. They're like, I don't want to go back to the flushing toilet. Like That's right. we've come so far, Margaret, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> So the book also uh, does a lot of interesting things. It sets a a very evocative uh, picture of the time and place, but it's also uh, very aware of the hurdles that are faced by women in music. Um, Do you have a sense about how that has changed between now and then? I think you mentioned MTV earlier. I think MTV changed uh, the 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 process of working in the music industry for women for the worse. And mm. uh, Lynn Goldsmith, who's a, a great uh, uh, rock journalist for 50 years, uh, says that that is the moment that it became less about talent and more about how you were, how you looked. Yeah. And it changed so much. Uh, what's your take? That's a great question. I, I think that like everything else, it made things easy. It's like it sped up all the processes and made it easier to blast past so many more wrongdoings right. because there was just a higher volume to keep track of. And I mean, I, I don't really know. I'm not a scholar of this, but I, you know, in my observation, just merely as a Taylor Swift fan, I would argue <laughs> that there's still some shady stuff going on in a big way. And people still, it, it still blows my mind what people think they can get away with, even with the increased scrutiny mm-hmm. and the fans being so much more involved than they ever were before. But yeah, I do think like you were talking about, we were ta- this kind of dovetails with the conversation about starting younger mm-hmm. rather than getting that time to get things under your belt. Like part of that MTV inheritance is the emphasis on youth and the need to get out there while your pores are still tiny and all of it. And I think like, like that's, that's really hard. And I, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's reserved for women. Obviously there are a lot of young male pop stars who also are being commodified, but I do think that you can probably stretch it further as a guy. Whereas for girls, I definitely think you get a window and from there, good luck. Well, you talk about being a Taylor Swift fan. She's a unicorn. You know, oh, she yeah. is someone who started very young and I think had that kind of seasoning for a little while before she she really made her mark uh, in a big way. Uh, and then with all the stuff that has happened in her career of late, her you know, former managers selling off the, or the record companies selling off their rights to her uh, old recordings and stuff. The way that she has responded to that is, I think, amazing. She said, well, all right, you can have those. I'm just going to re-record them all. And you know that Taylor Swift fans will buy the new recordings. They will, they will gravitate towards the new stuff. They are mobilized. Mm -hmm. And, and I love that she did that because it's, it's not just for her at that point. Like I think Taylor is a genius, first of all, in, in many ways, in terms of like 
just the stuff that she puts out and also how she markets herself. And I think at a certain point you've like, I don't think she's made all the music she wants to make. Obviously she still loves collaborating and, and finding new ways of expressing herself. But I would imagine for someone as smart as her, like there's an interest in looking at the bigger picture now and being like, I have all this power. I am a unicorn. I'm outside of the normal power structure. How can I help? And I do think that she did that, you know, for herself, but also to stand up for women in that space in general. And it's so appreciated. And I love that her fans are so mobile and they definitely all bought those records (laughs) and are like listening to them on Spotify. And I, I don't know, it's, it's wonderful when someone who has that kind of visibility does something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And she, I think she has a female record producer now so like or, or her immediate producer is male but her like her overlord is female so i think there's something there too um yeah. what is the takeaway from your book is there a takeaway or is it just simply a great summer read that we can all uh, sit back and enjoy and oh, not stop, have to think don't stop don't <laughs> stop <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's a story. So there isn't really one takeaway. Like there's a lot in there. A lot happens in the book. It basically covers two years and 300 pages. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think my hope is that there would be something in there for lots of different people. I think, you know, the, what, what's the takeaway for me? I guess it changes on a pretty regular basis. Different things resonate depending on what's going on. Jane is the central character. She's our, you know, rising folk star music prodigy who goes through a huge metamorphosis, both emotionally and creatively throughout the book. And I find, you know, at this point, I'm so familiar with Jane that I almost resonate with the like tertiary characters because I, right. I love minor characters so much. But I think I don't, I think part of it is it's just a thought experiment and like what, what is the place of talent versus capitalism and like what, what would someone who is really good be able to get away with and what wouldn't they and also like, what will happen if we keep seeing this woman face down the same situation that seems like a no win, like how would that break out and how would that, you know, end. And I, I think, like, I don't, I guess for me, like, I don't know. It's interesting. Like part of what you do when you write, I don't know if this has been your experience as well, is you're actually trying not to moralize a little because you don't want it to feel prescriptive. So I think there are little sentences throughout that sort of reveal my thoughts on various philosophies and various like pickles that you could find yourself in. But, um, ultimately, I don't know. Like, I think for me, like the nut is in chapter 24 six when Jane is hanging out with her grandma and her grandma is basically having her reinvestigate her identity which has up until this point been based on being in a band and it's this idea of like shedding your former self in order to embrace more power and I think like watching Jane find the courage to do that is something that a lot of people you know I would hope would find inspiring and help them have the courage to you know go for the thing that they didn't think they could do themselves you're listening to my interview with Emma Brody her book songs in Ursa major is available now wherever you buy fine books I think that there's something uh, to be said for the idea that an ambitious woman is treated uh, differently and looked upon differently than an ambitious man is and, and this goes back to talking about women in the music industry but I think probably in a very broad sense, you know, in almost any industry. But that's one of the things that I sort of took away as, you know, as she has this breakout success, um, uh, the the reaction isn't always, oh, good for you. 
it's there, there's there's a, a variety of reactions to it and i that's one of the things that i found that gave the book the subtext that gave the book uh, such richness oh thank you yeah it's it's fascinating just to see I think of Jane a little bit of as like a Howard Rourke character who like sometimes is aligned with the powers that be and then other times definitely is not. And I think part of what the fantasy of the book is, is, you know, there's the rock star stuff that's super high frequency, but then there's also this family of hers where she always has a soft landing and they own property. Like Jane never has to worry about like having a mortgage (laughs) or like hypothetically childcare because they all help each other raise their babies. So it's, there's this aspect of it. That's like just so fun because you get to see her go up against this stuff, but you basically know, like she's, she's not going to be homeless. Like she's going to be okay. And I think there's something in that that gives her this like beautiful generations, deep security in her femininity, in her place in the world that enables her to be this strong in a world that is otherwise like pretty foreign to her. Like part of what I, I like about Jane's origin story is that she's from an Island Mm -hmm. off the coast of Massachusetts and really has very little experience with the mainland. So she's American, but she's, she's from another place. And when she shows up in America, it's the first time she's really contending with these dynamics. And I love seeing someone who's like, completely fresh but still strong in who they are go into these things and like will she be tainted won't she will she come out herself or will she be different you'll have to read to find out <laughs> <laughs> well i think people will emma thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today oh thank you for having me this was a blast i really appreciate your questions and you reading the book it's lovely that was emma brody find her book songs in ursa major wherever you buy fine books and we just have a minute or so left, so I wanted to leave you with just a quick soundbite from my interview with Jimmy Smits. We all remember him from so many things, Star Wars and NYPD Blue. Well, he's one of the stars of In the Heights, which is in theaters now, if there is a theater open near you, or you can find it on premium VOD. It's a joyful movie that'll make you feel better leaving the theater than you did when you're going in. In fact, that's kind of how I started this interview with him. I just want to play you this one sound. Jimmy, I love a quote from your director who calls In the Heights a vaccine for your soul. This is a vaccine for everyone. I know I felt better after this movie than I did going in. So tell me uh, how you feel about hearing that. Oh, Richard, it it makes me so glad to hear you say something like that because uh, we were, you you can imagine with the the lockdown that happening and the pandemic and having a film that was supposed to be released a year prior for a big summer release, whether it was, were we going to ever see movies in the same way again? Things happen for a reason. It's the perfect little bundle of joy. That, and so it's a great thing that, that, that Lynn says it like that, that this is the Vax for Joy. The Vax for Joy. I love that. You can find In the Heights in theaters right now and on premium VOD. My thanks to Jimmy Smits, to Dr. Jen Gunter and Emma Brody for stopping by. But most of all, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy. And we'll talk again soon.